Well, time now for Midweek Media Watch. And Hayden Donnell's in the studio with me, which is great to see you, Hayden. Welcome aboard. Kia ora, Mark. Good to be here again. Indeed, indeed. And we should start, I guess, with what's been the biggest international story for some time. Now, the war in Gaza. Yes. And on a media front, I've been pretty surprised, I have to say, by the lack of coverage on some of our major news sites of this war. There have been times over the last few days where there hasn't actually been a single story on the homepages of our biggest news sites about Gaza, including at times even this morning I checked, uh, and that was following Israel's bombing of the Jabalia refugee camp overnight, which killed dozens of civilians, including children. And look, this is odd because obviously this is a huge international news story, and Maybe people aren't going to the Herald or staff for their news on Gaza, particularly when a lot of that news is being served up to them on social media, which nearly mm-hmm. everyone is on. Of course, they also have options like Al Jazeera, CNN, mm-hmm. the New York Times, the BBC, other international news. But talking to people at some of these major news sites, they actually put the comparative paucity of coverage mainly down to stats. And look, I've done this job, you know the stats live constantly and they can be very distracting you see the green arrow go up the the red arrow go down and look in the herald's case for instance maybe stories are selected by raw clicks raw clicks or in the herald's case they also have a premium uh service so that can be also conversions whether Mm. they get people signing up to premium and if stories on gaza are not doing either of those things either getting raw clicks or getting people signed up to premium then maybe they won't make their way onto the Herald homepage. And look, I can kind of get... I Look, it's understandable to a certain extent. This is an economic environment where journalists are being laid off. Maybe they're trying to make these very cutthroat economic decisions here. But at the risk of preaching from my safe public sector pulpit here, mm-hmm. I do think, and I say this as someone that's been in this seat, that editors need to weigh the long-term interests of the organisation, its perceived credibility, its reputation, its status, against that short-term sugar rush of uh, what is clickable Mm. or what might be getting the clicks. And I think there's a certain point where you do need to just switch off the stats and go use your judgment. Mm. Mm. Do what you think, what what you judge to be the right thing. And I think in this case, a story like Gaza really should have its place at the top of the agenda just due to its importance. It's it's such a hard watch, though. Is that putting people off, do you think, to a degree? Yeah, I'd have to speculate there was something that was said to me that is just tough for people to... Uh, mm. People want to avert their eyes because yeah. it is really... It's distressing, and the world and the news... We actually know this from some surveys, that people in New Zealand, more than any other country just about, they do avoid the news, and it's partly according to the surveys, because it's just negative and they don't want that in their lives. They don't mm. want to have this negativity. But in this case, I think that we probably need to put that in front of them. We need mm. to have to tell people this is something that you have to uh, focus your gaze on. Someone here says, totally agree. Absence of uh, of Gaza on New Zealand homepages is dire and embarrassing. And then another one, which is an interesting point from Jim and Papa Moore, the coverage of Ukraine over the last three weeks has suddenly been near zero as well. 
It's yeah, maybe there's only room for, for, one, for one, one at a time. distressing international conflict on the news pages at once. But even, look, it's not even there. Yeah. In this case, like I've looked multiple times yeah. over the last few days. There's absolutely no cars. Not home. even an update, not Stories. even a little few yeah. inches. Which yeah. is, uh, it, it is it's so, it's very wild when you look at social media, it's dominant there. And also that it's obviously this massive and uh, international story with huge implications. Yeah. And a high, highly charged topic, of course, with uh, opinions from people defending. Israel and speaking up for a ceasefire. It's also difficult getting the information from the ground. Our media organisations are posting coverage. Often they're then criticised for it. Yeah, hard to get information from the ground. Uh, hard to get into Gaza in the first place. And it is true that these news organisations get a lot of criticism, sort of no matter what they post about it. And in some cases that's well-reasoned. I'll highlight the blog The Present Age, which is... Uh, the media commentator Parker Malloy and she criticised AP for initially headlining a story about uh, the what happened at Dagestan Airport, what the BBC uh, termed a mob storming Dagestan Airport in search of Jews or stuff called an anti-Semitic riot. Uh, the AP initially called that uh, crowd storms Russian mm. airport to protest flight from Israel. Now that it's probably a little bit too light there. Things obviously turned out to be a bit darker than that. Malloy was critical of that. She was critical of the New York Times as well for its initial reporting on the Al Ali hospital bombing or its headline on that, which she thought was too uh, focused on the Palestinian version of events and what was a contested space. And it's true, as Malloy asserts, that news organisations should be careful with their headlines and write them like they're the only thing that readers will see because... Quite often they are the only thing mm -hmm. that readers will see. But I uh, would note that I have some sympathy for news organisations in this case. Writing headlines at incredible pace in a breaking news environment during a conflict that's permeated by propaganda and information warfare. And it's pretty tough when you have to make a judgment call on limited facts and you have to know exactly what you can and can't include. And sometimes you're going to get that wrong. Uh, yeah. Some of that criticism of the media coverage is less nuanced. And in, in, in some cases, it's you know pretty unjustified, really. I think there's a lot of circumstances where just anyone expressing any kind of sympathy for Palestinian victims, thousands of whom are, of course, children, mm. will be accused of supporting Hamas, and that particularly happens on social media. This was something that was highlighted recently by the Herald reporter Janae Tibshraini, and she did this on, ironically, one of the most toxic venues for debate, and that's Elon Musk's ex. She wrote, I don't get some of the divisive rhetoric on the conflict in the Middle East, Surely people can protest the senseless and barbaric killing of any type of person without being called anti-Semitic, pro-terrorist, anti-Palestine or whatever. You can be pro-human full stop. But look, maybe that sounds uh, a little bit wide-eyed. This is something that has happened for a long time with this conflict. It's been a, a centre of vociferous and strong mm -hmm. opinion. And having said this, I mean, you'd hope that fear of criticism wouldn't be playing a part in editorial decision-making. Because acting impartially, trying to get as close to the truth as possible, uh, that has to be our news organisation's North Star. That should be the sole centre of the decision-making for what they choose to platform. And rather than any secondary concerns about how they'll be perceived or perhaps more pertinently all the all the complaints mm. they'll have to deal with. You'd hope that that isn't a factor in their editorial decision-making.
Well, a lot of news organisations have adhered to, the, to that mission and they have put out solid coverage, including much that has been critical of Israel. Yes, and I'd like to highlight some of that international coverage and commentary. I think the Financial Times, not exactly known for being the wokest organisation on earth, it's called for a humanitarian ceasefire. In its editorial, that was headlined, The Catastrophe Unfolding in Gaza. It opens acknowledging the atrocities carried out by Hamas on October 7, but says that Israel is carrying out a war crime in response, collective punishment carried out on Gaza's 2.3 million citizens. And another thing caught my eye on the British radio station LBC, one of the presenters, James O'Brien, he had an exchange with a caller and he put this pretty pertinent question to him. I think this is a really important question. Whenever I hear the phrase collateral damage or I hear objections to language or claims that it's not the same, do you think that if Hamas was hiding in Israel, the Israeli army would be pursuing the same tactics in pursuit of them with regard to civilian life? No, I don't. Well, there it is. Now, there it wasn't. The conversation did go on for another couple of minutes, but I'll just skip to the end of it. This is the question. Why would they be less likely to go after... Hamas in the same way if they were hiding in Israel that they are if they're hiding in Gaza. Because there would be Israelis there. Pardon? And they, they would care less about, uh, they would care less about, they would care more about Israeli lives than Palestinian lives. But they're also... And that's the, it, the that's hosti- all I wanted and, I, and I'm grateful, I'm grateful for your honesty. I think we reached an interesting admission there on the, uh, some people's dehumanisation. And look, that's commentary. Uh, I want to say there's also been really solid reporting done in this space. Now, it might have been superseded by events today, given Israel openly opened, uh, well, owned up to bombing a refugee camp this morning. But I, I want to note that the New York Times Visual Investigations team painstakingly analysed footage of the El Ali hospital bombing on October 17 to shed new light on who might have been behind it or who wasn't behind it. And now, as you'll remember, there were competing competing claims over that bombing with Hamas blaming Israel, Israel saying the destruction was caused by a malfunctioning rocket launched inside Gaza, and that second narrative was the one that took hold uh, pretty quickly after uh, that explosion. Now, the New York Times team, headed by Arik Tola, they concluded that the projectile that caused the explosion actually was not fired from inside Gaza, but from the Israeli city or near the Israeli city of Nahal Oz. Now, other analysts, including one credited by Tola, have said that the explosion was likely caused by an Israeli Iron Dome interceptor missile. So that's uh, just an update mm-hmm. on that story, and that was some pretty painstaking work to put together that. Uh, it is worth noting that the media who are covering the story on the ground are doing so at uh, great personal risks themselves, aren't they? Yeah, this is another side of the media story here. Of course, all war zone reporting is risky, but in this case it seems the press are at particularly significant risk. So just highlight one incident on the Israel-Lebanon border. The Reuters reporter Issam Abdullah was killed and six other reporters were injured after being hit by what appeared to be missiles fired from what they saw an Apache helicopter. Now, the group Reporters Without Borders, they advocates for journalist safety. They carried out a video investigation of this incident. It concluded the reporters were likely deliberately targeted as they were in clearly marked press vests. They were in an area, they were stationed there for a while and they were hit with precise strikes 30 or 40 seconds apart. Now, this is audio captured of the first strike. A journalist from the Lebanese television station LBCI a few metres away, 
reports in a video that he can see an Apache helicopter in the sky not far from them. At around 6.2 p.m., Reuters news agency broadcasts these images live. Victim of a bombardment, our journalist says she can no longer feel her legs. Uh, that's pretty harrowing footage put together by Reporters Without Borders. Israel's UN envoy, uh, Gilad Erdan, said that the country would never deliberately target journalists, but added, you know we're in a state of war, things might happen. Now, uh, that's not the only team of journalists that have been uh, injured or... Well, this is actually not a journalist that was killed, but one apparently uh, this morning in the refugee camp, Al Jazeera said 19 family members of one of its video team, Muhammad Abu al-Kamsan, were killed in the strike. So that's on Jabalaya refugee camp. Mm. Israel has taken responsibility for that, and uh, Al Jazeera called that bombing heinous and indiscriminate. It called it an unforgivable act and it called for Israel to face the full force of international justice. 19 family members. Yeah, what? so uh, I think it was a father, sister, so many nieces, nieces and nephews, uh, sisters-in-law were the, on the list that I read. Right. Well, we'll move on to local news now, and one of the bigger stories this week, uh, that Supi went out of business. Uh, what did you make of the coverage of this? Some of the coverage was pretty sympathetic to Soupy's founder, Sarah Ball, I thought. So in Newsroom, we read that she'd sweated blood to win market share off the supermarket duopoly. The story noted her devastation over her firm's failure and staff on and on RNZ. We had company director Ben Keeps also noting that Hall had put, a uh, Ball, not Hall, had put her heart and soul into the company. And look. Nothing wrong with that, with mm. carrying Ball's perspective, but I thought it was worth noting as well that Supi appears to have structured itself in such a way that the employees there have lost out on wages and annual leave due to its downfall. And the stories about her heartbreak may have also noted that her company was almost designed to maximise her employees' heartbreak in the event mm. of its failure. So these are often low-paid employees. They might have a bit of taste in their mouths, I'd say, reading about their boss's devastation as they go through this massive financial shock in the lead up to Christmas. Other media coverage is focused on the plight of those employees, though. Yeah, credit, credit where credit's due here. Alka Prasad, Chris Keel of the Herald's business team, others like One News, uh, Katie Bradford, they've written stories and uh, aired stories highlighting and explaining the plight of Soupy's employees. Uh, who said they were in tears after being told by administrators from PricewaterhouseCoopers that they would not only miss out on annual leave payments, but they were unlikely to get paid their last two weeks of work. In Soupy's organisational structure, apparently the employees seem to have been uh, paid by one entity called Workerly Limited, while the debtors of stock are held by a different Soupy entity. And I, I see that uh, CTU uh, is crying foul over that arrangement, as you'd expect. Yes, it, it, it put out a press release this morning calling on Soupy's investors to pay out workers and its secretary, Melissa Ansel Bridges, said investors, they took a risk on Soupy in the hope of financial reward. They should bear that risk and not the employees. And 
Good news, actually, on that front. Uh, we found out this evening. It's tonight, yeah. Yeah, that an anonymous donation's come through and that Soupy's employees will at least be paid out for their last two weeks of work. Don't know whether it was an investor, as the CTU requested, but at least someone has fronted up there. So that's a decent outcome. Not sure about the annual leave. That's still there. Uh, stuff, at least, the saga, the, the employees' distress, that definitely would have been good to note and all of these stories alongside the paragraphs about Sarah Bell's uh, Ball's disappointment. Mm. But some good does come out of this, though, a recommitment to addressing the country's high grocery prices from the commissioner. Yeah, coincidentally, this all happened on the day our new grocery commissioner released his first to-do list. I think it was three points long. So it's something of a perfect storm on the on the grocery pricing front. Now, I'd like to highlight the efforts of Nathan Radady on RNZ's first up here. He got National's deputy Nicola Willis to commit to finding a way to increase competition in the supermarket sector, and that was during an interview that I actually listened to live at 5.45am on Tuesday morning on my way to basketball. So here's a snippet of that exchange, Mark. Of course, for those employees uh, who found out today their job is gone, you know, that's just really sad for them. But also, actually, for the challenger that Soupy was, I met Sarah, who set it up. She was really intent on bringing real competition to our grocery sector, and I want to see that too. I'm of the view that we need a third entrant to break up that duopoly. So if I do become the Minister of Finance in the next few weeks, I will want to seek advice on how do we ensure that we do get a third entrant into this sector and that it doesn't have the same sort of failure that we saw here. Interesting point hearing Nicola Willis there. Um, It's the first politician I've heard in a while. In fact, I wonder, have you enjoyed the the post-election holiday that everybody has had with not a politician in sight? It's been blessed relief, hasn't it, Mark? (laughs) I love it. Jessica Much Jenna Lynch, Nicola Willis, get away. (laughs) 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 No, don't. We're we're, we're free for a second. It's been quite peaceful. I think only Patrick Gower is absolutely (laughs) distressed about this, this turn of events. Yeah. I think everyone's quite relaxed, not not having any political events. Well, uh, Friday it's going to change, isn't it? From New the, Zealand, at least, when the special votes thing sort of yeah, I mean, make this it is, all come. I, I back. love the feedback of our audience on this. Have you enjoyed your break from politics? <laughs> Would you like it extended? Are you dreading Friday when the special votes get returned and we might actually end up with a government? Two one oh one. Two one oh one. There you go. Now, the supermarket duopoly is also in the news, uh, perhaps contributing to inflation with its prices. And you heard an interesting interview on that uh, topic on Morning Report. Yesterday, yeah. This was on my way back from basketball. Uh, I heard this <laughs> one. This is It was actually a reasonably good interview. Westpac economist Kelly Eckhold was on for what was generally a relatively illuminating interview about the Reserve Bank's economic decision-making and Westpac is saying that Adrian Orr might have to raise interest rates again next year because inflation is not getting under control. And there was a back and forth with Corin about this, but I thought that his response to a question, which seemed to take him a little bit from left field, honestly, from Corin, about the bank's own role in this process was notable. What's happening here, though? I mean, there's a, you know, we're talking about supermarkets. People will be putting the, the old blowtorch on the banks as well with their margins as well. I mean, why can't the banks raise this money that they're having to get off, offshore locally, put deposit rates up, attract capital here so that we don't have to be reliant so much on overseas interest rates? 
Now, I'm not going to play the response. He didn't really get a response to... Surprise, surprise. That, exactly. <laughs> to, to that question. He went on a little bit of a different tack, but Corin's asking, why don't you put term deposit rates up? Why don't you, why don't you lower your own interest rates? Why don't you cut exactly. down your own margins? Now, he did uh, get a bit more of a response when he returned to the question later. I understand what you're saying, but what I'm saying is, what about the margins between what banks are setting in terms of their deposit rates and their interest rates, and are they being reasonable? Oh, I don't really have a particular comment on that. I forecast the economy rather than the bank's margins, but I can certainly get someone back to you who can talk about the bank's own pricing policies, if you'd like. I understand what you're saying. You're, 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 the, you're the economist. You're not the, uh, not the retail side of it. Oh, no, I, I couldn't possibly comment on the bank's margins. Don't know anything about well, Nothing to do with them. Not my they just they may, they may be paying my salary and all that, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get back to you. <laughs> was, I, I, was Corin, was he overstepping the mark doing that? Uh, I mean, he's right. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, at the same time, Kelly Eckhold's right. Uh, he's He is the economist. He's mm. on the retail side. And Corin did clarify again later, I heard him, that, that, that banks have arrangements in place to ensure the independence of their economists from their retail side. Look, uh, you, I did wonder, listening to it, whether he would have the same reserve when he's talking about something like supermarket margins, mm. fuel sector margins, something like that. And maybe he would. Maybe – look, I don't know. Yeah. But I thought that it did highlight an issue – with the extent to which the media relies on these bank economists for commentary on the state of the economy, because let's face it, they're kind of a little bit compromised when it comes to an extremely large and influential section of the economy, and that's the banks themselves. And they've been making some pretty big profits lately. I don't know if you've seen, Mark. Yes, I do know. I'm fully aware of I'm contributing quite a bit to them. Yeah, too. there you go. Actually, uh, the You're other question is... too. Oh, totally. The, the other uh, question, who won the basketball? And uh, what were you playing wait, basketball actually, at quarter uh, of seven in the morning? It's a social game. It's a so- we won. We won. Good. Um, okay. It's organised by, yeah. Quarter to seven in the morning. Well done. 6 a.m. actually. Oh, God. That's it's, impressive. It's a real nightmare. Now, you went to an, uh, an event tonight called Bury the Bird. Not Larry Bird. Bury the Bird. What was that about? It was uh, Bury the Bird. It's a wake Oh. Or a funeral for Twitter or the oh. Twitter that was. The I blue went, bird. <laughs> yeah, that's the bird that we're talking about because obviously a lot of predictions of Twitter's demise or Twitter as as Twitter has already died because it's now called X and this was an event to say bye to it and sort of, I guess, reminisce about how it used to be a lot better than it is now. Uh, and look, it, it was... Mainly, I think from my perspective, I was there to interview some people and it was about, it used to be, have a lot of utility and I remember this as a news gathering and news making uh, or apparatus. You know, you, you get verified and verifiable information on there about unfolding breaking news events and you would also be able to actually keep your ear to the ground about what people cared mm. about a lot more than you could now. Partly that was because you had a chronological timeline you could kind of live tweet live events mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't so algorithmically generated. And uh, it, it was also just the verification system. You could actually tell who was trustworthy and who wasn't. All of that's broken now. So that was all discussed. All I hear about X is that it's just got more and more toxic now, that it's 
Yes. People, people are leaving it because and the are question people. is whether all social media gets. I, you know, I, I mentioned this to the people I was interviewing, but I remember do you, there was an internet downloading site called Napster. <laughs> do you remember? Yes. I went to the, the chat. I remember going music. to the chat rooms on this in like two thousand. I probably shouldn't have admit to it, my crimes back then, uh, downloading music MP3s. Yeah. But like, <laughs> even back then, I remember like the chat rooms were toxic and people just flaming each other. It seems like that that's almost a natural evolution of these. Yeah. Spaces that they get uh, overtaken by malignant forces, but that's why they need hefty moderation teams, and that's obviously gone at X. Now, Max is saying, uh, let politicians talk between 5 a.m. and 5 10 a.m. one day a week. That's that's a, I think that's a reasonable that's a reasonable starting point <laughs> there, before, Max. Just before the basketball match. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> then, the, then Patrick Gale will be able to get up for that, get us full, <laughs> and we'll, all the rest of us will go about our days. Dallas says, let's ban Guy Fawkes and politics. Uh, uh, okay, well, why why is that a bundle deal all yeah. of a sudden? I mean, I'm probably in favour of it now. I'm loving the politi- uh, political holiday. Guy Fawkes actually wanted to ban politics well, in his own way. Well, he did too, didn't he? He did. Yeah. Uh, hi, Mark. Government formation. The thing about the last three weeks of golden silence is that it's been total bliss. Pity it will end on Friday. Begs the question, though, do we actually need a government? Yeah, but why don't we just let one form when something big comes along, you know? Form a committee. <laughs> Call it a government. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, now we've got uh, six minutes to 11. Uh, Latest news at 11, of course. You've been alerted to some interesting printing problems at the Waikato Times. Double, double up. Yeah, eagle-eyed RNZ reporter Libby Kirkby-McLeod. She's been tracking this saga for Media Watch. And uh, first on Tuesday last week, uh, she she saw that the Waikato Times had published the same op-ed by Ralph Stewart about KiwiSaver twice on two adjacent pages. So... Uh, interestingly though, the op-ed had two different headlines. So how to improve your KiwiSaver on one page and what to improve and avoid with KiwiSaver on the other. Seems like a sort of innocent mistake. The same thing happened though this week. Uh, Same column by Virginia Fallon printed twice on adjacent pages again with a slightly altered headline in a flap over bird in the house on the left and a bird in the house is worth a column in the hand on the right. <laughs> so they're printing the same the same columns twice on adjacent pages. Is it a is this is this a tactic? Is this on purpose? I really want to know. I will be raising this with stuff. But in the meantime, if any stuff affiliated listeners can explain this to me, I'm all ears. <laughs> I'd love to know. Now, last week you mentioned uh, reporter Tony Wall uh, said he'd run naked down the street of the All Blacks beat Ireland. And he was trying to back out with a donation to charity instead, which is probably would suit everybody all around. Uh, but any updates? Well, on that's that? exactly what people have said, yeah, <laughs> that this is a better outcome. Now, he, he's said that he made it onto Media Watch for, <laughs> for, for, not for journalism, but for his promise to run naked in public. And look, he said, obviously, people don't recognize a metaphorical quip these days. No one is seeing my, seeing my lily white, I'll say, buttocks. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, ask. he said. I've donated to charity instead. He's he attached a screenshot of his donation. He did indeed donate to the Cancer Society. Now, uh, his peers have responded that this was not a metaphorical quip. I agree, it was not a metaphorical quip. This was a promise, and uh, but they've said, like you, that the donation is the best possible outcome. I disagree. This is cowardly. This is a cowardly <laughs> betrayal. This is why people don't trust the media. 
<laughs> now, despite this, uh, Tony Wall, he's making quite a presence of felt on Media Watch because you do have some positive things to say. Yeah, after and, that sorry, negative us. thing, I was like, he did write a great feature about the British television personality turned conspiracy friendly New Zealand resident Noel Edmonds, oh, yes. who's bought $30 million worth of property in the tiny Tasman town of Ngati Moti. Mm. Now, uh, he actually got. Noel Edmonds to front up and talk about his purchases, which include a pub, a general store, and a coffee cart in an estate he calls Riverhaven. He also has a vineyard and a cafe, I think. Yeah. Now, Edmonds said he was just trying to make people happy and himself happy, but stuff found that the locals were not quite so happy. They weren't as comfortable with a TV star from Britain mm. coming over, throwing his weight around, buying up half the property in town. Yeah, it was a good read. Like he owns, it's it's an interesting read. And Noel Edmonds, big star, absolutely huge star in the UK for so many years. If you don't know who he was, you will at least know who his counterpart is, Mister Blobby. Mister Blobby, that's right. I think Mister Blobby even had a hit record or something, but that's obviously what happens, isn't it? But um, when you've got that sort of profile, but um, Mm. you know, a fascinating story, rather nasty story, the second part about a cycle trail and a woman trying to promote a cycle trail which crossed his land and that... uh, He did not like the cycle trail. He did not. No. Anyway. It's a good read. I'd recommend it. So too. Uh, It doesn't make up for what Tony Wall's done though, or more accurately, (laughs) what he has failed. Just reminding him. To do. Yeah. A big story in the ODT. Yeah, just quickly before we go, there was a big story in the ODT about Otago University hazing ritual where apparently Mm. students were compelled to bite the leg of a live duck. And it was the basis as well for a big story on Checkpoint about student initiations on October 10. Now, the Otago University student mag critic has cast a bit of doubt on this. They've Mm. tried and failed to find the duck biters. that They've reached out to the ODT asking for proof of the duck biting. It seems like it was based on a second-hand report from someone's mum. The mother. Yeah, Yeah, and it it seems like they're implying it might be apocryphal because they asked the ODT whether they reverse image searched their apparent photographic proof of this duck biting it might not have actually uh, didn't it evaded the questions on the reverse image search look critics i think is a little bit skeptical that the duck biting took place mm. though it is true that there are some pretty gnarly initiations going on down lots there of still. vomit by all accounts which is disgusting but anyway yeah. we've all vomited yeah buckets i uh, we don't want to go there, do we? Well, you, I don't think you'd be welcome in Otago University. <laughs> no. uh, oh, maybe you would. <laughs> well, I wouldn't at my age. Well, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> maybe you should go back. Ah, senior citizen, goodness knows. All right, well, thank you, um, uh, Hayden, for, for that. Um, all wrapped up. Nothing else to say? Oh, well, I don't think so, unless you've got some good feedback about the lack of politics. Uh, no, it still continues to come in. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's struck a little bit of a nerve. Guy Fawkes was the only person to ever go to Parliament with good intentions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think yeah. David Seymour got in, in trouble for a quite similar comment to that, actually. <laughs> I should say, we do not agree. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> Righty ho, well, coming up uh, after 11. Thank you, Hayden, by the way. Uh, and of course, don't forget to listen out on Jim's show, nine o'clock on Sunday morning. Colin Peacock will be at the helm, no doubt. And I'm sure you'll make a presence of Media Watch on uh, Sunday morning. Thanks so much. Thanks. Um, after 11, it's a Pocket Edition this week. Maggie Tweedy meets Alison Moshart uh, from American English duo The Kills. And Kim Hill speaks to the legendary hip-hop artist, the co-founder of Public Enemy, 
Chuck D about his extensive career in the arts. And that's only minutes away. Um, we'll be back, of course, with more nights tomorrow night, including our changing world and a continuation of the reading. This is Nights. Nice.